The World According to Gorf. The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network, jmandtheam.org, nachumsegel.com. Sitting here in Newton, Massachusetts, outdoors, so you're going to enjoy the sounds of summer in Newton, Massachusetts, just a stone's throw away from Boston University, my alma mater, and of course, Boston, Massachusetts. It's a gorgeous 80-some degree day here, and I am seated with one of my heroes and a hero to us all in Jewish music, one of the founding members and the golden voice of Safam, Joel Sussman. And of course, my job in this introduction is to embarrass him to the extent that it's even possible to embarrass Joel Sussman. I don't know if it is. Is it, Joel? Uh, Long ago, not recently. I have kids and grandkids. You can't be embarrassed anymore. (laughs) Joel, thank you very much for joining us on The World According to Gorf. Let me get us started right away. Give us a quick background as to where you started in Jewish music and how that led to a super Jewish music group. Safam. I don't know when they're going to be playing this. It's 2015. And I realized I started playing professionally 50 years ago this year. I was a kid playing in rock and roll bands. And eventually, after college, wound up living in Israel. And really, probably I could trace the beginning of an interest in writing Jewish music from a year in Israel. So I had uh, been writing for some time before that, but was interested more in Jewish topics, like the song Jerusalem I wrote when I was in Israel, long, long before Safam. I moved back to Boston in 1972. I wound up in the Zamir Karel of Boston. It was a great way to meet other uh, Jewish uh, kids of my age. After college, it's not so easy to, to, to meet other Jews. And so that was like my social network when I first came here. So two of the guys that I met in Zamir Karel that year was um, uh, Dan Funk and Alan Nelson. We're also singing in Zamir. And the three of us started playing trio gigs for Hadassah donor dinners and women's league luncheons and that sort of really big stuff, you know. And eventually that evolved into more of a rock-style group with six, seven members, and that was the original Safam. And our first gig was in uh, December 1974. We played uh, Jewish Agency Standards, stuff that had come out of Hasidic Song Festivals and that sort of thing. Shortly after that, we met Robbie, and Robbie wound up joining the group. And that was the beginning of Safam, and that's really where I then started calling back on sort of my library of Jewish songs that I had started on when I was in Israel, and Robbie and I started writing together, and it's sort of taken off 40 years of writing since then. You're referring to Cantor Robbie Solomon. Cantor Robert E. Solomon of Baltimore. Of Baltimore. What year were you in Israel? What was that year? I was on a, uh, a program, Shrut Laam. It was 1971 and 72. I was living in Ashdod, which was a brand new development town. There was, I think, about 10,000 people in Ashdod. Now it's 110,000. But it was uh, a group of American kids working in a new development town as social workers and English teachers. I was a social worker for part of the year. I really was a lousy worker. I was just enjoying myself in Israel. So I I probably did more fun things than working things. I was absent a lot. That was what they'd call the golden years of Israel, sort of between the two wars, when all things were possible. Was Ashdod then like it is now? I did a triathlon there very recently. And the thing that struck me about the town is it's very built up and suddenly it ends. I mean, it doesn't gradually wind down with lower buildings and more sporadic construction. It's just, it's congestion and then sand dunes. Yeah, I think it was pretty much the same way back then, just much, much, much smaller. I mean, it was a brand new town. Uh, it was a town built up around a brand new harbor. I went back to Ashdod a few years ago. I was... I. I um, did a teul in Israel with my three old roommates from the year that I was living in Israel. We, the four guys, went back together without wives for a uh, for a trip around Israel. And so we went back to Ashdod, and we tried and tried to find our apartment. And our apartment building was very easy to find in 1971 because uh, it was only one of two apartment buildings. Now it was like one of uh, of 200 apartment buildings, and the roads had changed. We did eventually find it, but it was not easy. So the city, yeah, has grown. It's a lot like, uh, I think Phoenix is the same way. The city kind of expands to the next neighborhood, and then beyond that is desert. Give me a sense of what the political, and for that matter, the cultural landscape was like for you in Israel, why you were drawn to a year in Israel, and when you left, how it had inspired you 
Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate to, just by luck of the draw, wind up living in Israel probably at the very best time to ever live in Israel. Um, so this was post-Six-Day War. It was a time of uh, tremendous hope. It was a very peaceful time. It was a time when you could really go anywhere without ever being concerned. No area that I would think twice about going to. Golda Meir was uh, prime minister. So it was uh, labor, left-wing. It met all the dreams that a kid coming from North America in the 60s and early 70s was looking for. It was kind of escaping the America the way it was changing, not in the direction that people of my generation was looking for. And Israel was everything we were looking for. And, of course, all the Israeli friends we met, they all wanted to be American. Now, we wanted to be Israeli. They wanted to be American. I'm not sure who won out. I want to take one step backwards. Before you were in Israel, when you were in grade school and you were in high school, what was your musical training and what were your musical influences? You're hitting on all the important questions. So I grew up in Western Canada in a huge Jewish center, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. There were 2,500 Jews living in the city where I grew up. And the nice thing was I knew all of them. I went to Hebrew day school, the Edmonton Talmud Torah, which was a strong, I'd say, Zionist school, not religious uh, I grew up in a traditional conservative household. We were very much uh, shul people, so I grew up as a davener and Torah reader. So I had a really good, solid Jewish, Hebrew, love of Israel background, which is why I knew at a fairly young age that once college was over that I wanted to go to Israel for some period of time. Musically, I come from a musical family. So my father was a musician, untrained. But he filled my life with music, so I was playing, uh, I started on the ukulele because my hand wasn't big enough to play guitar, uh, probably when I was about five, that, and piano, and we'd have family bands, uh, and he taught me how to uh, harmonize, and we used to do family shows together. Uh, mother, siblings? Uh, an older sibling who wasn't particularly musical. My mother was a good listener. <laughs> she was a great audience, but my father really was the influence for me. Did he play uh, an instrument? He played anything with strings. So he could just pick up anything and play it by ear, which is kind of the way I learned. I was pushed into, now kids, don't do this. I'm not, don't do what I did. I was pushed into uh, piano lessons when I was eight, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. I lasted one year and quit. And from that day, from the day I quit was the day I actually started playing piano. And then I played all the things I wanted to play. Became a, you know, sort of an what I would call an adequate piano player, but developed really a love for piano, self-taught guitarist, same thing. In terms of musical influences, the earliest I can remember probably would be the Everly Brothers. Which bye, bye, yeah, they, just great harmony. Learned a lot about two-part harmony from Everly Brothers. And then, like anybody my age, the world changed on February the 9th, 1964, when the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. And I knew, watching them as a, uh, at the time I was 13, that I was going to be a musician. They remain today a, uh, a musical influence. So let's take us into the 1970s. It's 1973. You're back in the United States. Where are you? And how are you taking your musical influences and your inspiration from Israel and translating that into what would become the contemporary American Jewish songbook? Well, as I say, I'm, I moved back to Boston in uh, late 1972. Uh, I followed a girl back here that I met in Israel who's from Boston, and last year we celebrated our 42nd anniversary together, so I guess it's working out. And I, You can't skip over that. <laughs> you have to tell us the full story of how you met the lovely Debbie's husband. I'm not sure if this is an interesting story. My wife was um, head of dance, Rosh Rikud, at Camp Young Judea in Kimberly, Texas. Wimberly, Wimberly, Texas, in the uh, summer of 71. That same summer, there was a Young Judea Garin that was about to move to Israel that all went to the camp. In that Garin was my cousin. And so she knew my cousin. My cousin then made Aliyah. Uh, my wife then came to Israel for a semester abroad in January of uh, 1972. I met her through my cousin, and as they say, the rest is history. Who was the one who approached whom? Oh, I chased her. I, I've been chasing her for 42 years. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ahead of the game yet. <laughs> 
Well, that actually brings us full circle because the reason that I'm in the Boston area is that I just spent a wonderful weekend doing the Jewish cartoon workshop at Camp Yavne, where Debbie Sussman is the director. And as I was leaving, they were just commencing Yom Israel, Israel Day. They had music blasting over the loudspeakers and everybody was spread out al Chofayam on the shore of the lake over there and dancing up a storm. And she was right center of everybody. 1973, musical influences being translated into the great American Jewish songbook. How did it begin? I came here, I got involved with Samir Karel, um, really expanded um, my general musical background in choral music for a bit, and it was all Jewish music. Um, Give us examples, what songs? Well, they did popular tunes like, uh, oh, now I'm going to have to remember back f- over 40 years, the songs we did. And actually, you know, I, I think I was probably on a bus coming back from a gig with with uh, Zamir, and I hear this guy a couple rows behind me singing all the lyrics to Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues. Now, everybody knows that song, but I don't know anybody who knows all the lyrics. They usually get <laughs> the Nights in White Satin... Never meaning the end. Letters I've written, then it's ba ba da 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 da. You know, you you go into the da 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 lyric. Um, yeah, he knew all of them. So that was Dan Funk. <laughs> so that's that's how I, I had to go meet Dan. Yeah, so we sort of had a common musical interest. I met Nelly uh, in the band. I, again, I was at a Zamir retreat in Danvers, Massachusetts. Uh, we stayed at a hotel. It was a weekend uh, retreat that we went to, and. I see this guy walking in the hallway in front of me, and in the middle of the hallway, he did a forward somersault, came up from the somersault with a key in his hand, into the door lock, opened the door, and went into his room without missing a step. So I knocked on the door. I had to meet this guy. That was Alan Nelson. Um, and and uh, so the three of us have been, have been uh, you know, great friends, I think, ever since. But uh, the three of us, um, you know, like choral music, but we're more interested in doing our own thing, more popular style music. And so it, it kind of just took on a life of its own. Uh, Nelly and I, the very first song we ever worked on together, we did an arrangement of Bashana Haba'ah. So it was a traditional, classic uh, Jewish agency song, modern song from Israel. And still is. Still is. So we did this arrangement that sort of played off of the theme from MASH. And we wrote that out, and it's actually on our very first album. That's, that song is there. And we, this year, to celebrate our 40 years together, we actually started playing that song again at concerts because uh, we haven't played it in years and years. And then I pulled some stuff out of the vault. So I had written uh, Jerusalem, which uh, wrote just towards the end of my uh, time in Israel. So I pulled that out, and the guys like that, Chalamot Ben-Gurion, David Green... I had written back probably a little before Safam, so I pulled that out. So we started doing original music, and it really took off when I met Robbie. Uh, we met Robbie through a, a mutual friend. He had just written a musical play f- on Purim, so he joined the band, and he's been my writing partner ever since. That helped me a lot as a songwriter. Uh, Robbie has formal training. He did more than, uh, when he was eight years old, one year of uh, music lessons. So, uh, you know, he really... Uh, he helped me mature as a songwriter a lot, and I still depend heavily on him when, when writing. And we'll talk more about that partnership. That, by the way, became Safam, in case you haven't guessed so far. Yes, that's the musical group that changed the face of Jewish music in the 1970s to today. We're going to play Jerusalem, but I love doing the Jerusalem medley with... With Amnesty. On The World According to Gorf, on jmandtheam.org. The history of man. Whether it's a Hitler, Brezhnev or 
You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. JamInTheAm.org, this is Gorf. The World According to Gorf, seated in Newton, Massachusetts, with Joel Sussman of Safam. When we left off, we were about to talk about the songwriting partnership between you and Robbie Solomon. Let's analyze a little bit your process for songwriting. Are you more individual writers that bring ideas to each other to bounce off of in the kind of Lennon-McCartney way? Or are you more of a Paul Simon kind of writer, in, or are you both Paul Simon kind of writers where you're going to write something, it's going to be your vision 99%, and then you bring it whole cloth? I'd, um, a little bit of everything, but I think uh, the majority of the songs that we write, they're fleshed out and pretty much written individually. So I'll come with a, uh, let's say come to Robbie with a, uh, a song that's maybe 80% done. Uh, and then we work on sort of the balance and finishing touches together, and he works pretty much the same way with me. Occasionally, we've worked on songs together. Give an example. Um, Just Another Foreigner. We did that together. That's a very influential song. Can you describe the process of how that got written? What was the influence or the inspiration, and what was the process? The inspiration was a personal experience. So when I first moved to Israel, I was in a Merkaz Klita in Kiryat Shmona. An absorption center, yes. An absorption yes. center. Studied Hebrew for for, uh, for three months in Ulpan. And um, this was Jul- July tw- 20th, 1971, is when I arrived in Kiryat Shmona. I still remember that date. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of my three months was high holidays in Kiryat Shmona. And I went to services that was done at the local high school. At that time, it's pretty much the same even today, but certainly at that time, just about everyone in Kiryat Shmona was an immigrant from Morocco. So their Hebrew was almost unintelligible for me to understand. None of their melodies were any, anything I'd heard before. And I pick up the machzer, and it doesn't look anything like a machzer I've used in the past. So I'm constantly trying to find where they are in the service and really felt like a stranger. And then they got to Avinu Malkenu, and they used the same melody that we use. And it was uh, all of a sudden it, it felt like home again. And so sort of that experience is the first verse of sitting in a hall in Kiryat Shmona with Jews from Syria. Yemen, Yemen and, and Iran. Iran. The, the only Ashkenazi in Kiryat So that's, and I felt like the only Ashkenazi in Kiryat From that, we sort of expanded it into a verse on uh, Ethiopian Jews and on uh, Russian Jews. And Robbie and I did this, kind of worked out the lyrics together, the B section together. And that's how a song gets fleshed out. What about the melody? Where did the melody come from? Because it's an interesting combination, obviously, of what to you was a very foreign Jewish experience with a musical style that arguably at that time was very foreign to Judaism as well. I wish I could tell you how uh, the music came about. I just wrote it. I don't know. Uh, the way any of the music comes about that I'm, that I'm writing, it's sort of... Uh, um, it just kind of happens. I don't know. I get an idea. I like the idea of doing uh, a horn section. At that time, Chicago was really popular. So this idea of having sort of a rock song that has a strong horn section uh, was, you know, sort of influenced a little bit by Chicago or Blood, Sweat and Tears, that type of thing. But, you know, the horn arrangement isn't exactly Chicago style. It's, uh, it's got a life of its own. When you write melodies, are the melodies coming whole cloth from a dream or standing in the shower or exercise or whatever have you, whatever activity and it hits you? Or do you sit at the piano and noodle around in chords and find your way towards what you're looking for? Okay. Again, uh, a little bit of each. I have some stuff that just came to thinking about it, not anywhere near an instrument. I'll give you like uh, Nachamu Ami. Nachamu I wrote during services in my head. As a matter of fact, the anniversary is uh, this week because we have Parshat Vayetchanan this week. So that was that was the uh, <laughs> that was the time. It was uh, uh, sitting in shul, listening to the Haftorah. Thinking, well, there's an interesting line as it came up, and uh, I waited for Shabbos to be over, and then sat down on the piano and actually just sat down and played. It took about five minutes to write the whole thing out, but that was unusual. Usually, it's uh, it's work. It's it's sitting down at a piano and uh, playing with different progressions and different ideas, and something will click, and then you expand on that. Are you a lyrics-first person, or are you a music-first person? Yeah, I tend to be Mm -hmm. music-first. If you get a real good hook line in a song, the lyrics sort of come out from the music. They kind of almost write themselves. But, yeah, definitely I do music-first. Let's go back to Nachamu Ami for a second. I'm going to jump to the future. Did you ever imagine that that song would probably be 
your song with the greatest longevity because of the way that it's been adapted and adopted by choirs and Jewish a cappella groups all over the world? Uh, I didn't have a clue <laughs> that it would happen that way. Uh, I know I've, uh, my kids tell me, oh, you should go on uh, YouTube and put in Nachamu, and there's you know, literally hundreds of entries of, uh, of Nachamu. Some of them aren't bad. <laughs> some, <laughs> some are pretty good. Uh, some of them not so good. Uh, if only I got a royalty on all of those, it would be terrific. Uh, but you know how royalties work in the Jewish world. Yes, you get them in the next world. Yes, <laughs> Olam Haba. Uh-huh. So, uh, uh, no, I had, I had no idea at the time. Nachamu, Nachamu. jmandtheam.org, the world according to Gorf. I'm seated with Joel Sussman in his backyard in Newton, Massachusetts, just a little bit away from Boston, Massachusetts. Let's talk a little bit more about that song. I don't know if this was a unique facet at that time, but you combined Hebrew and English into the same song. Where did the idea come from to do it in that way? I had done a lot of songs prior to that also that had Hebrew and English together. You know, partly... My English is a lot better than my Hebrew, so I like using as much Hebrew as I can, but often I I will go from a Hebrew line to an English line because I'm just more comfortable writing in English. I I still can't write rhymes in Hebrew. That's, That's the hard part. You really have to be a fluent Hebrew speaker to write really good original lyrics. Well, that's because everything has to be a, o, or im. There aren't too many options there. So, I mean, it kind of brings to light some of the differences that I've always wondered about because, I mean, Safan's been doing this for a long time. Nobody ever does write the way we write. Nobody. Uh, What does that mean? Define the way you write. What makes a Safan song? The lyrics. I, I know you like the music, but there's a lot of really good musicians out there and with people with great voices, better voices than ours, better musicians than us, working in more intricate, highly produced studios than we use. I mean, there's a lot of of good musicians. Nobody seems to be able to write meaningful lyrics. So, so much of, of what's become popular Jewish music today, it seems the vast majority of it is they're just pulling prayers out of, out of uh, Sidurim. Uh, very little original lyrics ever being written. And for the few where, where they do original lyrics, and they're almost all in English from this country where it's original, they really seem to be rather sophomoric-type storylines. It's just Robbie and I spend a tremendous amount of time writing lyrics that have some meaning, whether it's personal experience or a story or there's a point or a moral or there's something something that you're going to take from that from that song that is meaningful to people and nobody else that i've run into is really doing that i never really understood why but even back then in the early mid-70s there was a preponderance of music which was the take a line from our liturgy and apply a melody to it. Even this Hasidic song festival material that you were doing, Yishma Yisrael Vaitzvika Peak and all of that, yeah. that's what that was. Yeah, and it's, it was all, uh, um, not only would they take a line from, from liturgy, it was always a cliche line. So it's never the obscure line that they're taking. It's Hine Matov, right? Or Matov. It's, it's, it's kind of the obvious lines. We played a couple times with uh, Shlomo Karlbach, who was a real interesting guy. And he, he was incredibly influential in developing Jewish music and modern chordal patterns that are used right to today. But all of his music is, uh, is you know, all liturgical. There's uh, Debbie Friedman. Most of her music is liturgical, from generally from the Reform um, prayer book, but most of it is taken from liturgy. Uh, when we were starting, there was the Diaspora Yeshiva Band. They were popular, all from uh, liturgy. Megama, they were a popular band. Miami Boys Choir, who st- I think still around. Debbie Friedman started when we started, so we, we knew her when... When she was a kid, <laughs> we were kids. All Jewish music was cliche, liturgical music. We just took it in another direction from a much more personal uh, point of view. And I never understood why nobody else ever did it. But I'd like to introduce a brand new recording from Safam. And it's an honor and a pleasure to introduce the next song. Joel, what are we going to hear? Let's try Yerushalayim Irahava, which is sort of a follow-up 
40 years later to Jerusalem. That's very appropriate since right. Jerusalem was the first song that we played. jmandtheam.org, the world according to Gorf. Here is Safam. Starting a year of Sherud Lam. We finished a course while living up north. Then moved down to Ashdod Al Khopayam. When it took us both by surprise. How a year in Israel has changed our lives. We fell in love on the Midrach of Birushalaimir. two gals while visiting friends in Ramat Eshkol. Our minds told us run, but our hearts said no. When it took us both by surprise, how a year in Israel has changed our lives. We fell in love on the Mirabal,
That was Safam with Yerushalayim Ir Ahava on the world according to Gorf on jaminthem.org. We're seated with Joel Sussman, Newton, Massachusetts. Joel, singer, songwriter, influencer of Jewish music with Safam, a group that is celebrating its 50th anniversary. 40th. You're close. I'm getting ahead of myself. 40th anniversary. What was the 50th anniversary? I've been in the in the music, doing music for 50 years. There you go. Yeah. And the wedding anniversary? 42. Okay. Sorry, by the way, I put him on the spot. <laughs> and even though Joel is wearing sunglasses because he's a cool rock star and that's the way he rolls, uh, I saw a look of panic in his eyes for a second. <laughs> like, dude, you don't do that to guys, okay? You don't hit him with the anniversary question without giving him advance warning. So I do apologize for that. On our real early years, we used to do... Um, a Hasidic version of Od Yishama, wedding song. And uh, Nelly used to introduce the song, and he'd ask people, who here has a special anniversary? So somebody would always raise their hand, for, uh, 42 years. And then he then we t- he talked to them back and forth, and then he said, okay, we're going to dedicate it to, you know, the Goldbergs for 40 years of wedded bliss. They shout, 42. And he'd say, 40 years of wedded bliss, two years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and at Bitachon, my first a cappella group, we had a song, L'Chad Odi, and we would do the same thing. We would ask if anybody here is engaged and wants it to be dedicated. And, of course, after the song was over, we would ask, well, did she say yes? Because in case it didn't work out, we still wanted to be able to perform the song. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go through the Safan playbook just a little bit right now. Tell us which songs grew to prominence and why, and which songs are your personal favorites that are not necessarily always on the playlist, but you kind of wish they were, because every group with the kind of longevity that Safam has had has those. Well, let me answer your first question. So what songs grew to prominence? Jerusalem on our first album was probably our first really big hit, but if I had to pick the one song that put Safam in a different league, it would be Leaving Mother Russia. Robbie Solomon wrote that all by himself. I had nothing to do with that song other than playing it for the last 40 years. But that song really gave us national prominence. It came out in 1978, but it was also at a time sort of the, the height of the Soviet Jewry movement, and it sort of became the, the anthem for the, for the movement. And the, I think in 79... There was the, the first really huge demonstration at UN Plaza, Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza at the UN. We were invited to play that song, and I mean, we freaked out. There was, you know, two, three hundred thousand people in front of us, a huge stage. Mandy Patinkin, I remember, did a song that we backed him up on, but uh, we, we did that song, and it, it really put us on the map. And we still do it at just about every concert. You, at some point, changed the lyrics to reflect the changing history behind yep. the song. Can you describe yeah. Can you describe I'm, I'm curious, what is the process that you undertake to first think to yourself, okay, we have something here that is of great historical importance, and it deserves a place in the firmament, and maybe we should just leave it alone, versus deciding, well, times have changed, thank God, Soviet Jewry has been a successful movement, so now we have to change the song from present tense to past tense. Yeah, I mean, the uh, song, the, Robbie originally wrote it, uh, Natan Sharansky was still a in prison. The lyric line was written far more from the position of he's in jail longing for freedom. When we did our greatest hits album, the very first, we have two uh, uh, double volumes of greatest hits. So when we were doing the first set, obviously the, the song that had to be on that greatest hits thing was, was uh, Leaving Mother Russia, but Sharansky was already out. And it didn't seem to make any sense to be releasing a recording of lyrics that didn't hold true anymore. And so some of the lyrics were changed more as looking into past tense, and we literally recorded it from scratch all over again with with orchestra. Mm. So it was totally separate recording. We didn't uh, loop just the vocal tracks from the original recording. We we redid the whole thing. And uh, we took advantage of that, and we've been doing the newer version ever since. For many years, and maybe this is still true, a Safam concert would be done in two acts, and that song would be the end of the first act, the first act break. Is that still the case? And why did you choose to use a somber, extremely historically-based song for that purpose? We've moved it around different places. For a long time, it was our encore piece. Um, for a long time, it, w- it was the encore piece that we uh, that we did, um, and probably it's more still even today we do it more as an encore than finishing uh, a first half. 
there was a section in the song that had overlapping spoken word. Can you describe how you guys arranged that part of the song? And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've listened to it, that that portion, which I think was the most emotionally evocative portion of the song, had to be deleted from the new version. There was a um, instrumental section that was really just the playing of a verse. On the album, it's done, uh, I think with a full string orchestra, we did that piece. And we started reading off names of dissidents. Again, it was the height of the Soviet Jewry movement. For those of my age, Certainly, uh, you'll all remember being at demonstrations of people holding placards with different dissidents' names on it. And so we would read those out sort of in this sort of haunting high reverb background over the instrumental. We did that live for, for a while, too, where we were doing the names. We stopped doing it for a couple reasons. Number one, a lot of them were freed, so they really wouldn't, you know, the, the song kind of evolved. But I think more important, there were too many names. We, we kept screwing up at concerts, so we just, we just stopped reading. There was a time where we were just making up names, you know, so... There, you know, there, we, I remember one time somebody, so we, we used the name Yastremsky, who was great for the Red Sox at that time, but you'd dump him into the thing nobody ever noticed. It sounded Russian. So. <laughs> Meanwhile, Yastremsky was let out of his contract yeah, yeah. and free agent, yeah, so yeah. he was very grateful yeah. to Safan for that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, by the way, that is the sense of humor that I have uh, come to know and love from Joel Sussman that I'm glad that we touched on at least a little bit. You all think he's this uh, pious Jew I know better. What were your favorite songs, both the ones that became extremely well-known and those that you thought deserved more attention? Well, in terms of what your favorite song is, I mean, for the most part, it's whatever I'm working on is my favorite song. So that, that constantly changes. If I had a look over the sort of a vast body of work of ours, 100-plus original tunes that we've done. The song that I still really enjoy listening to, and we hardly ever play it live, is Bad Choices, which is a song I wrote a long time ago. It's done more as tongue-in-cheek humor. It was just a lot of fun uh, recording that song, and it's got a terrific horn section in that song. I, I always enjoy listening to it. That song sounds more like Chicago than any other song we do because uh, of the horn arrangement. So that, I prob that's probably my favorite. This is Gorf on The World According to Gorf, seated with Joel Sussman of Safam. I'm curious, did Safam ever perform on the same stage as Shlomo Karlbach when he performed Am Yisrael Chai, the first Soviet refusenik anthem, and you, of course, would perform Leaving Mother Russia? Yeah, we were in, uh, I think, Queens College. I remember him coming down to our dressing room and asking, does anybody have a B string? He had broken the B string on his guitar, and Robbie saying, well... I don't have a B string, I have an extra E. He says, that's fine. <laughs> and you looked at his guitar, and really none of the strings were right. Uh, he was not known as, as, a, <laughs> as a real virtuoso uh, instrumentalist, but he certainly was an interesting guy who wrote some really important music. And it was pretty interesting watching him control a, a, an audience, because he had him in the palm of his hand. So he was a terrific showman and had an enormous following. That's a good segue into talking about the Safam stage show. My introduction to Safam was probably in junior high school or so in the back seat of the Ament car. Uh, Jeremy Ament and his wonderful parents were playing probably a cassette at that time. I don't. I think we were past 8-track. We were probably on cassette. It's coming back. 8-track is coming back. You've got to hold out. I'm holding out for real yeah. to real. Yeah. But anyway, he was playing Safam music, and I will admit that I listened to it, and and it didn't grab me right away. Now, skip ahead to about 1986 or so. I'm a student at Boston University, and Safam is playing. And every once in a while, you would play in your own backyard. And I don't remember how I came to that concert, but I just remember walking away and thinking, holy cow, I want to be these guys. 
I can't grow a mustache to save my life, but boy, do they have it. Why did I respond so much to the live show when the recordings didn't necessarily do it as much for me? Have you heard that before? And Or am I just crazy? And you're welcome to say I'm just crazy. And number two is, how did you go about developing your stage show, both your patter, the songs you would choose, your musicians, your musicianship, etc.? Well, I'll start off you're crazy. But aside from that... Uh, <laughs> I think our live show, I think we duplicate our music very close to what it sounds like in a studio. And um, by the way, I'm going to interject. I love your recordings, but it took the live show for me to get into the recordings rather than the other way around. Well, I mean, like all live shows, you have a certain energy to them that uh, that a recording, you know, you'll never find. Even live recordings, you're not going to feel that same energy. But our live performance, just the song itself, I think, we try to hold true to the original recordings as much as we can. Because I, I, mean, I hear over the years a lot of people say, boy, yeah, you, you guys sound just like you do on, on your album, you know, which I always took as a compliment. Because mm-hmm. you have a lot of bands that you know, they can work magic in a studio. Well, these days it's all digital, so you have you know, auto-tune and everything else. When we started, it was uh, tape analog, and what you heard is what was recorded. Uh, splicing with razor blades. Yeah, yeah. I think the show evolved just because we were having a lot of fun. So we probably laughed more than the audience did, and there's probably better jokes going on on stage that the audience doesn't hear than what they do hear that we're doing to one another. And probably the secret is never take yourself too seriously. After all, as they say, it's only rock and roll. To this day, I mean, here, we're old men doing this for 40 years, but when we get on stage, it's still just as much fun. That's probably what comes across to an audience is that we look like, you know, six guys that are really enjoying themselves. So as Jewish rock gods, did you ever have ego problems in the group? Oh, no. We dump on each other uh, often enough that nobody gets a swell dad. <laughs> right. Ever. So how did you build your set list? Particularly, you're a group that shares the lead vocals amongst several different people. Yeah. Did you have an eye towards making sure you revolve around the different voices? Was it more oriented towards themes? musical or lyric. Explain how you build that set list. It's a uh, detailed science. So first of all, the set list is written about 10 minutes before we go out. We're not the only ones to do it that way. You know, a lot of bands, the set list is done when they look through the curtain and see who's out there. We're very conscious about rotating who's singing. So you tend not to have a lot of leads over and over again. So you won't have like four of my songs where I'm singing lead on them back to back. Rotate the team. You don't want to have a lot of slow ballads in a row. So you, it helps when you have a large repertoire. You have a hundred songs to choose from. You can find that mix. We're not doing a lot of songs in a row of the same genre. We try not to do songs in a row that are in the same key, which is another thing you want to be careful of. And then you judge your audience. So pick certain kinds of songs when you have a lot older people versus a lot younger people versus kids are there. When you're playing at a place where you've already been there you know, four or five times, and practically everybody there has seen you already. You judge your repertoire a little bit differently for that group. But again, done at the last minute, you, it's, it's, they're all audibles. It's Jewish music, though. How can you play uh, songs in A minor in any other key? Isn't it amazing that, that Safam was able to do Jewish music other than the, in the key of A minor? All joking aside, do you have songs that are written in the major key? In Hebrew or English songs? That's a legitimate question, both. And and let me add this. Do you set out to write a song in minor? You're thinking, okay, this is more melancholy, it should be minor, or this is more upbeat, it should be major? No, I I, I don't pick that in advance. Really? The music goes where the music goes. L'chadodi, we we have a a l'chadodi that's in G major. There's an all in Hebrew, so... uh, uh, so that, that just broke your mold. but uh, And it has a whistle in it. Yes. Very good. Very good. Yeah. And by the way, I don't mean a whistle as in you stick two fingers in your mouth. I mean like a gym teacher yeah, whistle. That's right. Okay, I got it. It's ask. supposed to be a parade. Oh, is that, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I was, exactly. I've wondered was for years. You know, it's, well, you know, it's the march of, uh, you know, um, the uh, Shabbat Malkaz. It's coming in, so it sounds like a parade marching in. Very clever. Let's go to the studio. Describe your process of how a song goes from you composing on piano, Robbie composing on guitar, to taking it into the studio, orchestrating it, and in particular, this because this is my favorite part of any song, doing the backup harmonies. Mm-hmm. It depends on which album we're talking about. Our very first album, Dreams of Safam, which we did soup to nuts in one month in uh, August of 1976, was very quick to put down because we'd been playing all that music for about a year and a half live. 
So we, we knew it cold. After that, it's not as easy because a lot of the new music you're doing on the fly and, and you still have to play the old music at gigs so you don't get as much chance to practice. People always ask us, when do you practice? I, after 40 years, the answer is we never practice except preparing for an album. So we'll get together and work on that. The vocal arrangements pretty much are worked out in advance. Robbie and I will, will work on the vocal arrangements and then uh, sort of flesh out all the vocals. And then the four of us, Robbie, Danny, Nellie, and, and me, will get together and just go through it vocally on piano and make whatever adjustments for four-part harmonies. So by the time we're in the studio, we have a pretty good idea what the vocals are going to wind up sounding like. The basic tracks of instruments, we pretty much know because those are the instruments we play on stage. And then once that is done, we'll do post-production where we're adding horn lines and string lines and effects and other things like that. It's all done post-production. Are you producing yourselves? Yes, first five, six albums, we had producers, and then we've been producing on our own for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. Why don't you run down the personnel that go into the studio and what instruments they're playing? Basic tracks are almost always uh, piano, bass, and drums. So the bass and drummer will be whoever is playing with us at that time. We've had different bass players and drummers. Right now, Mark Snyder is our bass player. He's been with us for probably 15 years, been with us a long time. Rick Klain is our drummer, and we put down piano with it. Then we'll layer on guitar. That's sort of the foundation that then the vocals go down once those four instruments are down. How do people learn their parts? Do you have it orchestrated? as it written out ahead of time? Are you doing parts recordings? No, it's all written out. Who's writing it out? Thank God, Robbie. (laughs) (laughs) My notation would be incredibly slow. Yeah, Robbie is terrific at it. Talk about improvisation. Where does that enter the picture? More so at concerts than on the album. You know, studio recordings, it's pretty much set in stone. Do you ever do a song live and something improvisational happens and you wish you had done that in the studio recording? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever recorded any music where a year later they didn't wish they could go back and do it all over again. So, yeah, that happens all the time. But you talk about how you try to recreate the album experience live. Does that mean that if something wonderful happens live, you won't necessarily adopt it because you need to deliver that experience to the audience? No, if we find, you know, you you stumble across something that works better than the way you did it before, go with it. (laughs) That stays in. Give an example. Leaving Mother Russia, when we play live, you know, when we do it on the album, it's full orchestra. When we're doing it live, bass, drums, my keyboard, and Alan Nelson plays sort of a string pad in the background. I've changed the way I play piano on that song over the years from the way it's played on the album to the point at the ending now, which used to be just this sort of this uh, Hasidic bouncing, uh, we are leaving, da, 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 da. and it gets faster and faster. Leading into it is kind of a whole different rhythm that the band responds more to now. I'm not sure if the audience does, but we do, uh, and then eventually leads into that. So, I mean, that, that evolved, and that's stayed in ever since. And there's, you know, you do riffs, vocal riffs over parts. Uh, we do Falasha Nevermore, and there's vocal riffs at the end that we do a little bit differently than we did on album. Just kind of came to us. So I have to tell you quickly my Safam story. Sure. You're never going to remember this unless I told you this once before. I remember you. Yeah, you remember yeah. me. Right, That's I say that to all my fans. Yeah. Hi, Mom. There was a show somewhere around Boston, and you had... Uh, what song was it where you always had the audience participation, where you invited somebody from the audience to come up and you'd give them a T-shirt uh, to thank them for dancing around uh, and embarrassing themselves while you guys performed the song so wonderfully? Might might have been uh, just... Home to Jerusalem, I oh, think. we did on Home to Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah we've so. Yeah, we've done it on different ones. Maybe that was it, yeah. Dan was the impresario who asked, is there anybody who would like to come up and join us for the next song? And all my friends knew that I was a Safam groupie, and we were probably 20, 30 strong in the center of the auditorium. I don't remember where you were performing. And they're all pointing at me and yelling, him, him, him. And I see Dan looking around the audience, praying that there's somebody else yeah, that he can you know, choose. You, yeah, you look for a cute kid. <laughs> Always look, look for a cute kid. Which I clearly was yeah. not. So when I came up, I knew all the background vocals because I had memorized everything. 
everything that you had recorded. The song strikes up, and I saw that there was an empty mic, and you guys made the mistake of leaving it on, and I grabbed the mic, and I saw this look of utter panic come over Dan's face. Oh, no, what's going to happen? And then he realized that I knew what I was doing, and I had the best time on stage with you guys. And my only regret is you gave me a powder blue, very late 70s kind of uh, Safam shirt, and somehow or other it got lost. Collector's item today. Collector's item. It's uh, it's a shame you missed that. I I really wish that I still had that. So I can... I can tell you a story. We were playing a gig in Schenectady, I think, long, long time ago. The listening audience uh, from New York, you may know Saul Strasberg and Rami Strasberg, both musicians in New York. Saul's now a rabbi in Nashville. Rami is head of a school. Terrific musicians. They played in New York for a long time. But they were little kids. Rami was probably five, and Saul was probably about seven, maybe. And we asked, does anybody want to come up? And the two of them came up. And they sang their hearts out. They were fantastic. Sang on key. So after that, the two of them started writing me fan mail, letters fan mail. And then they started making cassette tapes of them playing Safam songs and sending them to me. And many years later, we wind up playing with them. Uh, Saul plays trumpet. Rami plays sax. Saul's a terrific keyboard player. Uh, and both of them are uh, wonderful, close friends of ours. But they started, like you, with kids coming up. So when Dan was looking around the audience, he picked him right away. Oh, yeah. He was an easy pick. The eyes yeah, didn't glance was, off of him. No, he was an easy pick. <laughs> and for me, that has come full circle as well, because I had the honor of performing with you live on stage years later at the Voices for Israel concert. Yeah. I had a blast singing backup on Jerusalem and, and Amnesty, uh, and Amnesty right? yeah, what we played earlier. And I recorded with you one word. I saved one word in Chazaka Menu. right? It, we do a harmony at the end, don't we? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, and, of course, we were never in the same room. I don't even know if I had, had truly met you in person. I mean, I'd seen you in concert, but I don't know that I'd yeah, actually we were, met you at that point. I think at the time in Boston. Right. Yeah. So that came about thanks to the magic of technology, which then brings us back to, okay, so we've exited the 70s and we're now in the 1980s. Musical influences are starting to change. Electronic music is starting to enter the picture. And eventually, digital media will start to take over. And it'll utterly change the way that music is consumed and especially recorded. Can you talk a little bit about how you evolved? We were fairly new to uh, the digital recording, so we, we were able to get right into that as soon as it was available. It was a game changer. It it made recording a whole different process. And for uh, any musicians out there that are recording these days, it's hard to imagine what it was like 35, 40 years ago recording where you're on tape. You're using razor blades to do edits. Our first two albums were done on eight-track machines. When we got into the digital age, it just opened up a whole new world. We're we're working basically limitless number of tracks, auto-tuning, so you don't have to spend hour after hour to perfect one small section you're having problems with. Mixing became so much easier. But on the other hand, having all of the variety and the choices of things available can tend to muddy up your music, and it doesn't sound like you anymore. It's really hard to limit yourself. Use it tastefully, but don't lose sight of you know the sound of who you really are. And so we try to remain authentically uh, Safam sound and not go into overprocessed LA type uh, recording sounds. Brighter day for me is Safam's magnum opus. It's your Abbey Road. Okay, you're referring to a tribute? Yes. All right, so I, I wrote um, uh, Tribute the Man very shortly after my father passed away. So the motivation and the emotion behind that song was at a very raw time. Lyrically, it just kind of poured out. It was It was pretty easy. To write the arrangement took a long time, but to write the music didn't take all that long. That year after he passed away, when we were doing a a huge number of gigs and traveling constantly and not able to say Kaddish all the time uh, for the year, that was my way of doing Kaddish, that I knew when we were traveling and you have crazy hours and you're up late and sleep late and it's not a normal life, that at least I knew every one of those nights I'd be able to to do Kaddish. And I think that's how that song wound up coming to be. When people talk about their favorite Safam song or the one that they connect with the most... What answers do you hear? I've gotten the most mail over tribute. That's the song that hits home with most people. Once you get to a certain age where you've lost family members, I think that song speaks to the heart. 
And actually, I wrote a follow-up to that song a few years ago, which we've never had a chance to record, and we're in the process, actually, of, of trying to get it recorded, called Stone on the Grave, which is um, looking back years later at dealing with death of parents. And I think when that one's finally done, it's going to hit the same nerve. This is your composition? Yes. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Feel free to say no. Anyway, we can hit the piano and get a little preview? Sure. Comments, questions, or you just want to fetch? Go to facebook.com slash the world according to Gorf. Joel Sussman of Safam, do you want to give a little introduction to what you're about to play? Yeah, this is a, um, a song called Stone on the Grave, which I'm hoping Safam is going to be able to do a completed recording on this uh, in the near future. And I wrote this uh, many years ago, 20, 25 years after my uh, father died and then my mother died. And it's sort of uh, revisiting the song Tribute, but done at a much older age and looking back. Seems like I don't get back home very much These days I'm busy and fall out of touch But when I get back, the first thing that I do Is take out the stone that I brought for you Another stone on a cold, cold grave Marking the passage of time slipped away Each one has got its own story to tell Save for the one whom I knew so well There is a smooth one, the color of gold Brought from Jerusalem long, long ago Hold on to memories from the old days Just like another stone on the grave has got its own story to tell, save for the one whom I knew so well. There's one I brought when my daughter was born, named for the Zeta she never has known. He missed out seeing her grow in her ways, just like another stone on the grave. Stone on the grave, tears streaming down from my eyes as I see the Stone on the grave Helps me to remember Love will last forever Another stone on a cold, cold grave There's one that's marked from the tears that I cried that one I got on the day mother died Some memories stay with us into old age Just like another stone on the grave Stone on the grave Tears streaming down from my eyes as I see the Stone on the grave Helps me to remember Love will last forever These days I'm busy and fall out of touch But when I get back, the first thing that I do Is take out the stone that I brought for you Take out this stone Just like another stone on the That's a classic. You nailed it. Yeah, thank you. How do you keep your pitch so perfect <laughs> when you're starting from nothing? I mean, you're not you didn't warm up or anything. Your pitch yeah. is unbelievable. Uh, I'm lucky. <laughs> it's a lucky shot. Yeah, and by the way, uh, over the top of the piano is a picture of you, Joel Sussman, with your future wife, I guess. Yeah, it was taken in Debbie. our stood the uh, weekend we met. 
I can see why you've been chasing her for so many Absolutely. years. And with that hair and mustache, I have no idea what she saw in yeah. you. But I guess you started singing for her, yeah. and she said, okay. all right. I had, I had workmen in this room this year. I, we needed some um, repair work done, and they thought it was a picture of Lionel Richie. <laughs> <laughs> so, I said, thank you. <laughs> I can see that. Joel, before I take leave of you, one final question for you. Do you have any tips for songwriters today? I know you've been lamenting in very polite terms the state of songwriting in Jewish music today. So let's end on a constructive beat over here. What do you want to hear from people? Musically, keep it interesting. Don't do a formula. One of the things, if you look back on the body of work that Safam has done, while we have, I, I would say, a sound that you can identify, if you buy a Safam album, back in the days when people actually bought albums, and there's 10 songs, all 10 of them are different. Try to make the music have some variety to it and learn your craft in terms of songwriting. Lyrically, to be true to yourself. Don't take the easy road. you got to work hard at the lyrics, but you can find your voice and you can find the things that you want to write about and, and go for it. Joel, Su Joel Safam, that was very good. Yeah. I'm looking at the mustache yeah. picture, and that's where I came from. Joel Sussman of Safam and of Debbie Sussman of Camp Yavne. And, of course, we didn't touch on your family, your children, your grandchildren. You have a whole legacy behind you and a whole legacy in front of you. In some future interview, I also want to ask you about the American songbook. Safam is the only group I can think of that reflected Jewish American history as well as Jewish history. That'll have to be for another time. Part so, two. Part two. So thank you very much. It's been much. a pleasure. Thank you. Shalom, shalom.